2 Corinthians 13, Paul is continuing his discussion about arriving in Corinth, and at this point dealing with unrepentant sin in the church. And he's been talking to a particular smaller minority group in the church that is teaching bad doctrine and living sinful lifestyles. And Paul has been addressing those things. And now he's going to speak to them very clearly about what that is going to look like. So verse 1, he says, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, and I foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. So Paul is saying, hey, look, I'm showing up. I'm going to be there. And I've already addressed these things in the church. And this time he says, if I show up, I'm not going to spare. I'm going to deal with these things. He says, speaking from the Old Testament, two or three witnesses, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established in verse 1. Uh, that kind of idea of basic witnesses was what he was literally talking about. Paul wasn't just going to make uh, or address things in the church that were made up. He was going to literally bring forth witnesses, have people who have directly seen and addressed issues there, corroborating what he was dealing with. The apostles were not omniscient. Certainly God led them and had they had supernatural moments, but they were normal human beings, and this was a regular practice still. In the Old Testament, it was a part of the law, Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 17.6, 19.15. The general practice was, again, taught by Jesus Christ, even in general church processes. Jesus gave us a very direct thing to do. If you have a problem with somebody, you go to them alone. Then if there's still a problem, you get two or three witnesses, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. He spoke that about his own witness in John 8, 17 and 18. And it's repeated by the inspired apostolic writers in 1 Timothy 5, 19, where Paul directly says you shouldn't accept an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. Hebrews 10, 28 repeats it right here. Again, it's repeated. This is good general practice for things. I think we have all heard uh, the basic comment, there's always two sides to a story. And all of us have made the mistake at some point of jumping into a story before we really got two sides to a story. And having people who can corroborate a scenario are very important. Paul had firsthand direct accounts from this church. He had obviously started it and been there personally. He had people like the household of Chloe telling him things that were going on. He had letters written directly from them in their own words, things that were happening. He had sent people there like Timothy and Titus who had been there and were coming back telling him things. So Paul wasn't just hearing a story about somebody who was in sexual sin and then just going to jump in and deal with this thing without any type of corroboration. So he's dealing with things that are clearly addressed. And Paul's admitting, hey, look, every word is going to be established. Not just dealing with rumors or hearsay. He's going to step in if he has to. Witnesses will be brought forward. 
And he says in verse 2, at this point, even though he's absent, I'm writing to those who have sinned before. The idea is this has already been addressed. These sins addressed in the last letter or even in this letter. And I'm sure through Timothy and Titus, the people he sent to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. The idea being whatever those sins were. There's always sin in individual lives, and as people are growing, their sins are being dealt with. But this sin is being dealt with in a particular way because it's gone from just being a sin to being rebellion and disobedience. Okay, you're not just a person who's messed up. You're a person who's made a mistake. It has been addressed clearly, and you have refused to respond to that being addressed in your life. And you are now persisting in sin. So it's not that it's just sin. It is the sin of rebellion and direct disobedience added to it. And Paul says, at this point, I'm not going to spare. He had said in chapter 1, verse 23, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So where he had purpose, purposely before said, I'm going to wait. I wrote this letter. I addressed this sin. I'm going to give these people time to receive the letter, repent, understand the wrong they did. He said, I didn't just show up right away. I, I was sparing you. Now, he says, this time when I show up, I will spare no more. The idea is the sin is going to be dealt with. If it's unrepentant sin, every Christian is going to have sin in their life. And God has graciously given us the gift of repentance to deal with our sin. But when we choose to be unrepentant over our sin, anyone who claims to be a believer does not have to live in unrepentant, disobedient, rebellious sin. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to go deal with. And at some point in any person's life who's going to live in that type of sin, again, that claims to be a believer, there's always going to be a place where you have to make a choice. It can't go on forever. There's always a spot where the Lord will bring it out or where, where public will bring it out because it spills over from a personal life into other lives. And there's always a place then where somebody has to make a choice because Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. And we can't be the servant of Christ and the slave to sin. And that choice was going to have to be made by those in Corinth. They're going to have to acknowledge their wrong and repent. As the one man did earlier that was placed under church discipline. Or Paul was going to step in and deal with those scenarios. He doesn't tell us exactly how. We just know that he was going to. This time he would not spare. Verse 3. He says, since... You seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Now, it's a little strange, like, how does that fit in? Apparently, the Corinthians wanted proof that God was working in Paul that Christ was truly speaking through him. They were 
trying to discredit him, particularly this minority group, that God was really speaking through him or dealing with things the way Paul was dealing with things. And essentially what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, look, you want proof that Christ is speaking through me. Well, let me remind you first that Christ is, is mighty in you and also toward you, like the power of God. You want proof of the power of God. Well, I'm reminding you first that the power of God is pretty powerful. God works in mighty ways. But the, the instrument may look weak at times. That doesn't mean God isn't powerful or going to work in powerful ways. Their rejection and doubt toward Paul was really a rejection and doubt toward Christ. Because Paul's saying, I'm not the one working. It's Christ who's going to be the one who's working. And even though sinners can manipulate human beings or trick human beings, sometimes we think we can trick human authority, we're all ultimately accountable before God. And believers understand, I could pull the wool over a pastor's eyes or even an apostle's eyes or some people's eyes or my spouse's eyes or friend's eyes, but ultimately I deal with God. And I believe God is mighty in us and toward us. And Paul's saying, I don't have to act. God's going to act. God's going to take care of his own congregation. God's going to deal with his own sons and daughters. You're seeking this proof of Christ in me. I, I'd rather show up in weakness. And then Paul makes a comparison between the life of Christ on earth and the life of Christ in believers like himself, where he begins in four, he says, for though he was crucified in weakness, Jesus died as a man. He was crucified in weakness. He lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Again, the idea being Christ, who looked weak as a man, and was put to death and crucified, lives now in the power of God. And Paul, who looked pretty weak as a man, like what can this guy do about it even, was saying, that same God lives in and through me. It's not about me or threats that Paul could give. It was about the living power of God working in him and through him and working in believers. That's what we all claim to believe that God is in us and God is alive and God is working and he's not bored or lazy or snoozing somewhere. And what he's working toward is conforming us into his image and likeness. Paul knew that principle well. First Corinthians 1 25, he said, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. People look at and think is weak, is something God uses in powerful ways. So, that principle being true, Paul turns the examination around on them. And he says in verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust you will know that we are not disqualified. 
So for Paul, who's being treated and examined unfairly and dishonestly, he says, how about now you guys test yourselves? You want to know if Christ is working in me? Well, how about you ask yourselves if Christ is working in you? The word for examine there means to try or test the thing. It's actually most often translated tempt in the New Testament, like when Satan came to tempt Jesus Christ in the wilderness. The idea is a test was being given. Christ, of course, passed that test. The word for test there is similar, but it's most often translated prove in the New Testament. So they were to test or prove themselves. So Paul's saying, and how would they know if they were in the faith? How could they test or prove that they were really in the faith? And Paul's answer is very simple, that Jesus Christ is in you. How do you know if you're really in the faith? It's not just introspection, which can become unhealthy. Sometimes there are those who just look in their lives meticulously for sin. Uh, if you do that, you will find it, <laughs> usually very quickly, and you will become depressed if you do that too much, because, yes, you will be discouraged in yourself. Uh, if you're honest, if you're dishonest, you'd be like, man, I'm doing pretty good. But usually that's because you're comparing yourself to some other sinner who's just worse than you. But if we really look in our own lives and we're honest about it, we're going to find sin. You don't have to usually look too hard. We can all find a lot of that. Self-examination without self-deception is really hard. In fact, it's impossible without the Lord because only the Lord really knows us. And only through the light of his spirit can we really know ourselves. The psalmist would pray, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me. He knew God needed to search him. He couldn't just search himself. He needed the Lord's light. So what are we examining or proving or looking for? Again, it's not just sin. If I'm in the faith, is there sin in my life? It's not just that. Paul's saying we should be looking for Jesus Christ in us. That's the thing that might be missing. We're all going to find sin in us. But am I finding Jesus Christ in me? Because again, Paul's statement of Christian life, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul could say, Christ lives in me. You want to know why? Because Paul knew his life without Christ living in him. And what he could say is, in my life, there are things I have no answer for. Desires, movements, nature, that outside of a supernatural work of Jesus, these things do not exist in Paul the Apostle. Christ lived in him. Is the life of Jesus Christ evident in me? That's what they should be asking. Do I have actions and desires I can't, I can't account for other than the Spirit of God in my life? My dad makes the joke often, if I sleep in the garage, it doesn't mean I'm a car. Right? Just because I sit in a church doesn't mean I'm a Christian. Christianity is not a set of tenets. 
It's not just intellectual things to believe. It is a quality of life that is supernaturally imparted to people that makes them like Jesus because it's his life. And if I don't have that life, I'm not actually a Christian. It's not repeating doctrines or creeds. It's not having segmented portions of my week given to regular religious activities. It's more than good works, even though it can be shown through good works. Most people who are Christians should be able to look at their life and say, this is when the Spirit of God entered into me and began to live in me. When did that happen? This is when I became different. I know a lot of kids who grew up in the church, in church circles. The church has been around over 40 years, as many people have grown up in it. And many of them, if you ask them where they saved when they were young, they, their answer would be, I don't actually know. But I can tell you, at this point, my life changed. There, there's a place where they can see the Spirit of God worked in them. They knew the stories. They went and did the religious things. They might have even liked them. It's a nice place. People are kind to you. Sing some songs that you like. Hear nice stories. But does Jesus live in you? That's what Christianity is. That's what Paul tells them to examine. And at some point, they look back and they say, I don't know, but I know he does now. At this point, it's a quality of life. Examine yourself. Do you have Christ living in you? Not just Sunday, every day, every week, all your life. Is that the reality? Romans 8, 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This was the examination Paul wants them to look at. Don't just, don't just say, can I write down the right creed? Can I repeat the gospel to you? That was not Paul's definition of Christianity. He didn't just say, did you accept Jesus? What he says is, is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? And the interesting thing is, Paul thought that could be a clear examination. Don't just assume, examine, prove yourself. Is your life the life that Christ would have you to live? Or could I say that Christ is living through you? <laughs> Am I living a life that Jesus would live if he was in my life? Is that what I see? If not, then maybe I haven't passed the test. Maybe what I claim in terms of Christianity isn't actually Christianity. Maybe it's religion and not reality. Is Jesus in you? Paul says. That's the examination. Not sin. We all have sin in us. Is Jesus in you? Is that life in you? Does it show up even in the middle of the sin? Because Jesus, through his spirit, tells us to repent of sin, which they weren't doing. Jesus tells us what sin is. Jesus grows us in grace and in the knowledge of him. 
If not, if I look at my life and I don't know if that's real, then we have to beware that we're not disqualified or reprobate, maybe your Bible says. The idea is not passing the test. And apparently Paul thought that this was not confusing at all, that they could get this very clearly, that they could understand whether Jesus was alive in them or not. This wasn't something nebulous or confusing. In fact, he said they could do it for themselves. And in verse 6, he says, but I trust that you will know we are not disqualified. I bet you can see that about yourselves and me. It wasn't something confusing to them. It was something they should see very clearly. I would say if you feel like this is confusing to you, then it's likely that you're not actually born again then maybe you're not really saved because Jesus doesn't live in you. Anyone who has lived any amount of time outside of Christ should know if Christ lives in them. If your life is Christless, then I would encourage you to repent and ask God for his grace to give you his life that he would live in you. And he gladly wants to do that. And Paul can assume that they can do that. They can look and see and understand and examine and prove and actually test out by looking at their life whether Jesus lives in them. And he challenges them with that. Now, verse 7, he says, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable though we may seem disqualified. So what Paul is saying there is, look, I, I want you guys to do the right thing. I, I don't want you to be involved in evil. Not so that I appear approved. The idea was Paul didn't want the Corinthians to be on good behavior so that he looked like a good apostle. Right? Oh man, that church is doing so good. Paul must be a great apostle. Paul says, actually, I, I don't really care about that. I, I, I want you to do what's right because it's the honorable thing. That's why I want you to repent of sin and to honor Jesus Christ. Not so that I appear approved. He says, it's okay that we may seem disqualified. The idea is being, if Paul showed up and the power of God had to work through him to not spare or to discipline in the church, it would be evident God was on his side. And Paul's saying, I would be very happy to seem weak and disqualified by not having God prove his power through the rod in my life. We'll say, uh, I could give the example of Moses. I think Moses would rather not have had Korah stand on the other side of the line and have the earth open up and eat him and his people. Now, that made everybody realize, okay, Moses is approved, right? Uh, I don't think I'm going to cross the line and fight against Moses anytime soon. But if you ask Moses, do you wish that it would have happened like that? I think Moses would have said, no, I'd rather they just thought I was a weak individual and that God's power was not working through me. And not, have had to, got, not to have gotten to that point, I'd rather not use the rod or discipline or sternness, which Paul has been repeating this whole time, which any good parent knows. I'd rather my kids just be good and not have to be disciplined. And Paul is essentially saying the same thing. I don't care if people think I'm weak. I don't have to prove myself. 
I don't need the power of God to be working through me so that you realize Christ is in me and it works in a negative way to essentially have to discipline or to draw lines between people there. He's like, I just want you to be good because it's the right thing. I'd rather not be in the scenario where supernatural authority has to be expressed in judgment. I'd rather you just be obedient. And then if people think I'm weak, they can think I'm weak. That's fine. He wasn't out to prove himself. He, he could rest in that because of verse 8. I love this little verse here where he says this. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. This is a wonderful encouragement for any servant of the Lord, essentially saying in the end, the truth is going to have its way. All opposition is going to fail against it. Paul said, I know I can't fight against the truth. There's nothing I can do against the truth of God. I can only work with the truth. And it's important for us today because our culture is certainly at war with the truth of God. People fear quoting a verse like this, speaking about truth as if it is truth. Seems unloving, especially religious truth. And in some areas, people want very precise wording and clear definitions. But in religion, it's like, don't get too serious about your thing. Everybody kind of has their own thing. And as long as we're cool with that, then everything's cool. But the minute you say, no, this is true, and the rest of that stuff is false, then right? people don't really like that. To speak the truth with confidence is seen as bigotry. To divide over the truth is seen as hypocritical. To speak the truth in a way that hurts people's feelings is seen as hate. If there's any truth at all, we have to hold it very lightly we should hold it in majority. And we should also insist that there's no scent of intolerance about it. The truth is not something to be overly confident about, divide over, hurt people over. Certainly isn't worth dying for. Although we know the whole history of the church and even today, there are people all over shedding their blood for the truth. But in our culture, that's not what the truth is. Of course, if that is true, which it's not, if that's the way the truth is, then why would anybody live for the truth? Which is what we're seeing. If we knew enough, if we were loving enough, if we were modest enough, if we were as understanding as we should be, the truth would be held very lightly by every individual, and all truth would make us happy. Today, we've become so modest that it's hard for us to believe in truth itself. But the truth for us, instead of being this verse, would be the truth can do nothing against us. The truth works for us. But you notice that is not what Paul says. Paul says we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. We know we have a lot of people that are giving up on the truth in our day and age. Deconstruction is a part of our modern vocabulary. But it's not a modern thing. It's not a modern battle. It's happened all over. Adolf Safir was a Hungarian Messianic Jew who wrote in the 1800s. 
listen to what he says in a different culture about his day and age. This is in his, from his book, Our Life Day. He said, Christian maturity shows itself in knowledge. We're to be men in understanding. The apostolic prayer is that believers may be filled with the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. We are to go on to perfection. We have received the unction from above, from the Holy One, and therefore possess the power to know all things. It is through the truth that the Father sanctifies us. Growth in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is the necessary manifestation of life. This knowledge increases not merely in compass, but in depth. It assumes the character of intense conviction. In this respect, mature Christians form a strong contrast to a peculiarity of our present age. A keen observer thus describes this feature of our day. A weak generation feels it pleasant to be waved to and fro by every wind of doctrine. A childish and effeminate race deems it an advantage to have no fixed conviction and would find it tiresome to continue with lifelong loyalty to one truth and to find peace in one thought. It's constant change. The intellectual activity and excitement in the search after truth and not truth itself which is the great object. People like to go on their journey to decide, maybe figure out if they could, what truth is. Hence words, brilliant and subtle dialects, negative doubts and attacks on old opinions have formed the nutriment of many minds. This tendency affects even Christians. But God has revealed to us by his spirit himself and the supernatural realities of his heavenly kingdom. We know the things freely given to us of God. Jesus is the truth. And the spirit whom we have received leads us into the whole truth, according to the Savior's promise. It does not become the Christian with Christ as his light, with the Holy Ghost his teacher, with the scripture his manual, to speak as the children of the age who possess opinions but not truth who, seeking to establish a wisdom of their own, have not submitted themselves to the wisdom of God. But to be established in the truth is the characteristic of Christian manhood, the result of diligent, earnest, and conscientious study of God's word. None of this is new. Paul says we can't do anything against the truth before the truth. I'm either surrendering to it, working for it, or pretending to be working against it. There is no working against the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus didn't say what I say is truth. Jesus claimed to be truth itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a pretty huge claim right there. That means that he is the origin of truth. Even greater revelation than the truth that we have, there is greater depths to the truth in Jesus Christ than we know. That's why he is the truth. If I want to learn what is true, I just keep watching him. And he keeps showing me. And he'll be doing that eternally. Pilate once stood before Jesus and said, what is truth? And Jesus just stood there, stood there in front of him. 
Pilate walked down and said, I find no fault in him. Truth embodied right in front of him. It is the truth that Jesus is the truth, that what he says is true and always will be true. He's the only truth that ever has been and ever will be, and there's nothing that anybody can do against him or even would want to or should want to. His will, his thoughts, his truth will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and nobody can fight against it. We can pretend to fight against it. But in a world where everything's moving back and forth, one thing's true one moment, and then not true the next, people realize the instability all around them. Man, to come to the truth is a wonderful thing. The stability and the solidity that's in him. To know there is one way, one truth, and one life. Now, again, you say that in some circles, and people are not happy about that. But the reality is, it's what makes sense with God. Again, Peter Kreeft, in his book, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven, says, Why only one way? Jesus' only one way teaching makes no sense if religion is for subjective comfort, not for objective truth. It also makes no sense if religion is a human way up to God and not a divine way down to us. For most human things are at root equal. Races, civilizations, politics, arts, cultures. It's sheer imperialism to insist that only one man-made road up the divine mountain is the right road and all others are wrong. But Christ does not claim to be a man who became God, but God who became man. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Christianity claims to be the road God made down, not the road we made up. That's why the one-way claim is necessary, because we are only repeating the message God gave us. We are mailmen, not authors. It makes sense for God to make just one road. He starts from unity from the top of the mountain. We start from diversity from the bottom. Diverse human religions are indeed equal, equally failures. There's one truth, and it's him. God doesn't need a bunch of truths. God didn't institute a bunch of truths. Who he is, what he says, is the truth. And you and I are called to speak the truth in love, not to fear speaking the truth as it is the truth. Because the world is desperately in need of truth. It needs the truth that they're sinners. It also needs the truth that Jesus is the Savior. It needs the truth that there's a place to look that's never going to be false five years from now, ten years from now, or a hundred years from now. It needs the truth that where we're weak, he's strong. And that there's a purpose for every individual life. Because God made you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. We need the truth as believers. We need to speak the truth as if it is God's, not ours. When it's ours, there's pressure to have to explain it all, to work it all out. But when it's God's, we just leave it as it is. Again, we're not authors, we're mailmen. We just deliver the message. This is the truth from him. 
We don't make these things up. He speaks it himself. There's a temptation for people to water down the truth of God, the miraculous, particularly in the truth of God. But we can't speak the truth of God, one author said, with the high magic taken out of it. And what he means by that is simply this. When you just read the truth of God as it is, there's a supernatural wonder to it that can't be explained. It has to be left in God's hands. When Jesus stands in front of someone and says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's either true and supernatural and wonderful, sounds almost like magic, or it's not. What I can't do is take it and try to explain it into something that just fits in our little experience. No, it's bigger than that. And I can have a portion, but it can't ever be less than what he says. It's true. And it's wonderful that there's something in that fountain that I haven't tasted yet, and I can still be invited to. When Jesus looks and he says to a girl who just lost her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Ah, there's some magic to that. Again, not fantasy, but something that can only be supernatural. That's either true or it's not. And the one who spoke it is the truth. And what the magic of it is, is biblical life, supernatural life, something that can't be true outside of a divine interaction with it. It's supernatural. It's a mystery. It's truth that can only come from his reality. And it's not our job to rationalize, segment, or water down truth for anybody else. Jesus promises to take care of his own truth. And what he said is, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The guide into truth is not human rationalization. It's the spirit of God. And he guides us into the truths of the things that Jesus has said. And our job is not to defend the truth or water it down. It's just to speak it. And Paul would say, we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. Paul fought against the truth for a long time. And the truth won out in his life. And he's like, I don't need to fight against the truth. <laughs> I don't need to defend the truth. Nobody can do anything against it. Doesn't matter what you think about God in the end. He's true. And he invites us to step into the wonder of that truth. Now, Paul says in 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Again, Paul speaking of being weak as in view, not that he didn't have the power of God working in him, but his point is, 
I would rather be weak. Again, seen as Moses without God's supernatural intervention on my behalf. Again, Moses was uh, constantly being attacked by other individuals. He was attacked by the people. He was attacked by other leaders. He was attacked by his own family members. And in all those scenarios, God stepped in and did something pretty remarkable. But I think, again, if you ask Moses, would you rather your sister not have had to have leprosy? I think he would have said yes. <laughs> he, he would rather have been seen as weak. He didn't need to be uh, convinced that the power of God was working in him. He already knew those things. He knew God was powerful in and of himself. And Paul is, again, saying the same thing. When we're weak and you're strong, praise the Lord. I want that to continue. Again, I'm not, I don't need to show up and prove myself. I pray that you are made, he says, complete. That's a unique word used only there in the New Testament. It has the idea of being properly fitted together. I want everything working well for you guys. I, I don't want to have to come in in terms of discipline. Verse 10, he says, I write these things being absent, lest present I should use sharpness. He's writing in a sharp way because he would rather have them, in essence, repent hearing his letter than him having to show up in person and deal with those things in a different way. Because Paul says, I know my authority is from the Lord and is given for edification, not for destruction. I'd rather just build you guys up. But Paul wasn't afraid if building up looked like dealing with an unhealthy part of the body to do that too. And he's essentially pleading with these that are disobedient individuals to be repentant, to hear his words and to respond correctly. Now, verse 11, he gives kind of these quick exhortations of the things that he has covered. He says, finally, brethren, farewell. That word's often kind of translated rejoice, actually, but it's the idea. He says, be complete, again, which is, has the idea of being mature, conforming to the divine pattern. Be, be a mature version of a believer. You can have life and be a tiny human being, a baby, or you can have life and be a mature human being. Those are two different things. They both have life, but one is an immature version and one is a mature, a more complete version. It has all its teeth, right? Paul is saying, I want you guys to be complete, properly fitted together, mature, according to the divine pattern. Be of good comfort, he wanted them to be encouraged despite the issues. He didn't want them to be discouraged and beat down. God was with them as the God of all comfort. He says, be of one mind in regard to truth and purpose and obedience in the Lord. They should be aiming for the same things as believers. It's wonderful when you come to a group of believers and you're of one mind. And it's always difficult when that's not there. And Paul wanted this church, which had a lot of issues, to be of one mind. And then he says, live in peace. Idea being, of course, with God and man. God always has to be first. Man then falls in the line after that. And he says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The idea being God was always with them, but then by doing those things, it would open the door to experientially know God's love and peace in a different way. Give them the opportunity to experience God's work uniquely. Now, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss and all the saints greet you. 
the emphasis for us should be greet and not kiss. So you don't all have to go kiss one another afterwards. Of course, that was typical in places around the world do that same type of thing. It's a greeting. The idea is to not leave one another out, which I think is important. Certainly, you know, there's benefits to having a, a smaller congregation and a larger congregation and a smaller church. You immediately recognize somebody who's new. You're like, you've never been here before, you know. You can't sneak in there. Uh, they, a bigger church, it's easy to kind of slip in and out. For people, they might literally come for those reasons. And to just kind of move through, you can have more resources in a bigger church. It's wonderful to know more believers, right? There are pros and cons kind of to each one. But I think for a larger congregation like us, this is particularly important. We should greet people around us in a way that expresses brotherly love. Most of you sit in similar places in the sanctuary during Wednesday nights. So you would know if a new person came, well, and stole your seat, then you would know. And, but even just sat in your area, you would reckon, oh, this is a new person. You should be willing to greet that person, uh, even if they don't seem particularly happy. You know, certainly we have people who bring out family members, and a lot of them might be in very rough positions, unsaved or addicts. Or, you know, you got a person who's grumbling around next to you and bothering you the whole time, and they're new. You could just be like, what is that idiot doing? Tell them to shut up. You know, you get angry at them. Or you could turn around and say, is this your first time here? Nice to meet you. What's your name? How'd you end up here? You'll probably get a little bit of a story. We should greet the people around us. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, if you greet your brethren or your friends only, what do you do more than others? Don't the tax collectors do so? You know, if all we do is greet the people that we know, what, what type of Christian love does that show? Don't the tax collectors do that? Greet, right? Paul would say, greet one another, and all the saints greet you, the other people that Paul was connected with. There's, there's an important family congregation here, the type of greeting that engenders brotherly love. It gives us a sense that that's a family of people that care about one another. That should be what we do with one another. 14, and Paul ends with this, this beautiful benediction here. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul expresses this wonderful truth here. Uh, you know, people guess as to why he flips some of these things around. You would think the natural thing would be the love of God first, then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ second. I think Paul is just expressing these things in the normal process that we receive them. Like what happens first, usually we see the grace in the embodied person of Jesus Christ. Grace is extended to us as sinners. We see in Christ the grace of God coming for us, dying for us, and then living for us. And we accept that. John would say, it's in him that we see grace upon grace, grace and truth. It's in Christ that that active desire of God to impart 
all high and wonderful things in his sight come through. Jesus embodies that. He literally showed up in Paul's life and expressed it. And in most of our lives, that's where we first come into contact with spiritual life, the grace of Jesus Christ seen in our Lord and Savior, experienced individually. But then we begin to realize that when we see Christ, we see the Father. And the fatherhood of God is expressed in this relationship of father and son. And we learn a new love. There's a fatherly love that sent that son. Not because he was angry and needed to be made nice, but because he loved already and reconciled us to himself by sending his son. And we begin to experience the father in his love in a new way and learn about it and grow in it. And third, then we begin to realize, I don't actually see the father with my eyes and I've never known Jesus Christ in life. So how do these things become real to me? The divine father and the divine son can only be expressed through a divine power. And what is that? It's the communion of the Holy Spirit. And I realize the only reason Jesus is real to me is because the Holy Spirit makes him real to me. Is because the Holy Spirit is active in my life is because Christ lives in me through his spirit. And I realize there's another person that's involved. And the communion of the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Son to make himself known in our lives. And it's a blessing and it's a gift. And I begin to appreciate the work of the Spirit in my life in a new way. And the wonderful thing Paul says right at the end of that, those last few words, so important. Notice what Paul says, be with you all. Paul makes sure that these Corinthians know that all of God is for all of them. Nobody's left out. Nobody's missing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or the love of the Father or the communion of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, not only is nobody missing out, nobody gets the less because somebody else has the more. God is not divided up like an inheritance. He's not like a dessert at the restaurant where you're like, I have to share this with you. You know, if, if we split two plates here, I'm going to get a lot less. If somebody has more of God, I don't get less of God. God is infinite. I, all of him is there for all of each of us. He doesn't run out. He doesn't get sectioned off. He doesn't have to be shared. Human beings, they only have so much time, so much life, so much thought, so much emotion. They can only give up only so much time in a day to give themselves to something or to somebody else. And we all recognize, you know, all right, give me this time you have here. We'll try to meet up and you just, you know, you're a mom and you have friends and you're trying to connect and you just realize, okay, you know, the kid's going to kill themselves if I don't watch them. You're, you don't take those things personally. We, we are limited. 
God's not limited. So when he promises himself to us, it's all of him for each of us. All the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you could possibly need is available to you. All the love of the Father that you could possibly need is available to you. All the communion of the Holy Spirit to teach you who God is, is there for us, for you. All three, all for me. At any moment, at any time, at any day. And this experience should do something in us. If he is there for me, and all of him is there for me, shouldn't that make me more of a gracious person? More of a loving person? More of a holy person? If he's really with me, if I am taking my portion of this, if I am sitting in the presence of this God, he plays no favorites. He doesn't have to just give some of himself to somebody and hold back for another. He doesn't decide to be all for one person and not all for another. What that means is we all have as much of this God as we want. If you feel like I want more, God has already offered himself freely. He's for all of you. He's already offered himself freely. Ask, seek, knock. He's more willing to give than we are to receive. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. You need God's grace in your life. Well, you have all the grace in the Godhead. You need God's love in your life. You have all the love that the Father has to give. You need supernatural reality to break through the enchantment of the kingdom of this world. You have all the communion of the Holy Spirit that you could want. It's there for you. I'll read this to you, end with this. This is one of those things that you read that kind of ruins your life, so I want to ruin your life too. (laughs) No, it is both very hopeful and challenging, and I feel like somewhat tragic. This is stuck with me. A.W. Tozer wrote this in his Pursuit of God. He said, acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Always kind of stuck with me. Isn't it tragic that the God has all the grace, all the love, and all the communion of the Holy Spirit to give waits in our lives, waits to be wanted, and often waits so very long in vain. It's challenging to me because he's good and he's given himself to us first. And if you need him, you can ask because he's for all of you. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that you are good and gracious to us and with us. We thank you for your truth, Lord. We thank you that these things are true. And Lord, I thank you that I don't have to prove them to anyone here in this room or to myself, that you will do that on your own. And that you've promised to through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, you know what each of us needs individually. You are familiar with where we've been, with where we are, and where we're going. We don't know, Lord, where we're going. But you do. You know what the future holds. You know what we need to hear today. You need what we'll need for tomorrow. So, Lord, we want to open our mouths wide, and we pray that you would fill them with all of your fullness and all of your goodness. And grant us, Lord, please grant us desire for you. Never take it away, Lord. You again said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they'll be filled. And, Lord, we pray that we can have our portion of those things. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.